Welcome to the Volunteer Nation podcast, bringing you practical tips and big ideas on how to build, grow, and scale volunteer talent. I'm your host, Toby Johnson, and if you rely on volunteers to fuel your charity cause, membership, or movement, I made this podcast just for you. Okay, welcome everybody to this episode of the Volunteer Nation podcast. We are here to talk with Beth Cantor about nonprofit tech transformation and wellness. We'll talk a little bit about wellness today. You know, I've been following Beth for a long time, since about 2009 when I started my consulting practice, only two years after smartphones hit the market. Yeah, gang, I'm that old. And she'd already been blogging for six years. She's already been on the internets, uh, sharing her information, her insights, her wisdom. And I picked up her first book in 2010, which introduced me the idea that nonprofit tech was directly linked to the future sustainability of our space. And it was really the key to unlocking our connections with communities. And it was a key for me to think about how we connect with each other using technology. And, you know, subsequently, we started our nonprofit management academy, our volunteer pro membership community, and on and on and on. So it's been fantastic to follow Beth, and I am so pleased to have Beth here. Beth Cantor is an internationally recognized thought leader and trainer in digital transformation and well-being in the nonprofit workplace. She is the co-author of the award-winning Happy Healthy Nonprofit, Impact Without Burnout, and co-author with Allison Fine of the best-selling The Network Nonprofit. And that's the book I picked up back in 2010. And it's fantastic. If you haven't grabbed a copy, yes, it was published first in 2010, but it is an absolute fantastic guide to just about, you know, everything digital marketing. And I don't think it's, it hasn't lost its relevance. So pick it up if you can. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. Beth was named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company and recipient of the N10 Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations on that, Beth, by the way. She has over three decades of experience in designing and delivering training programs for nonprofits and foundations. As a sought-after keynote speaker and workshop leader, she has presented at nonprofit conferences around the world to thousands of nonprofits. Her most recent book, The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Age of Automation, was published in 2022. Learn more about Beth at www.bethcantor.org. And by the way, I will link to the book in the show notes as well. I've been reading it. It is also fantastic. If you want to just think about and learn about how technology is changing and why there's a bit of urgency for nonprofits to pick up on the, the trends. So, but before we get into all that, Beth, maybe tell our audience a little bit about yourself. How did you get into nonprofits and technology? And, and just tell us about your origin story a little. Um, sure, Toby. But first, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast for this conversation. I've been very much looking forward to it. So how did I first get into nonprofit work? Well, I did it right out of school, right in 1980. So I've been in the nonprofit sector my whole career. But when I was studying in school, I was actually a music major, classical music major on flute. And my goal was to play flute professionally. And when that looked like it wasn't going to work out, I took a look at arts administration or orchestra management more specifically. 
And I got my first couple of jobs working at the Boston Symphony, New England Conservatory, and eventually I was the executive director of the Pro Arte Chamber Orchestra. I was the only staff, but I <laughs> grew it and I got to learn everything from the ground up. And then from there, I was a consultant with arts organizations for strategic planning, marketing, fundraising, all those sorts of things, even consulted with the NEA. And it's somewhere in the early 1990s, somewhere around 1992, I took a job with the New York Foundation for the Arts, and it was a remote job to help develop ArtsWire, which was an online network for artists and arts organizations. And that's when I really started well, getting obsessed with technology and how it could help nonprofits with mission-driven work. And that's what I've been doing for the last number of decades. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I didn't know this because we didn't talk a lot about your story. I didn't want to ask a lot when we had our pre-interview and we talked before, but I actually have a degree in a modern art history theory and criticism, and I started my nonprofit career in the arts community, working in nonprofit art galleries and, and organizations. So there you go. Liberal yeah, arts you all to, the way. Like, <laughs> right. I think, you know, my music training helped me. Music was great because the piece of it develops, what is it, your right brain? All uh -huh. the, or no, your left brain. All the things like accounting and, and mm -hmm. planning, all the linear things you need to do. But the left brain, you also need to be creative. So I thought it was the perfect preparation for a career in nonprofits. Yeah. I mean, when I studied art history, it really helped me. You know, I started working in the arts community and then moved into social services, but it helped me just be a better critical th thinker in some ways to see the world differently, to look for different things, because as an art historian, you're always looking and analyzing and how does this piece of art have social impact in the world or where did it come from, etc. It's, it's cool stuff. So there have been 12 years between the network nonprofit and the smart nonprofit books, which you wrote with the fabulous, you've been telling me about the fabulous Allison Fine, and I'm hoping at some point maybe we'll have her on the pod. I've read both. I'm still, I, w I will be honest, I'm still working my way through this smart nonprofit, but I've picked out some fantastic learnings and insights already that I think will help our audience. Amazing and highly recommended. Again, I'll link to them in the show notes. So gang, you've got to go out and get your hands on these books. But your first book reads more like a primer or guide on digital marketing. To me, that's the way I felt. Your most recent includes some strategies and tactics in part two, but part one really feels like a manifesto about the urgency for nonprofit tech transformation. Would you agree with me on that or, or do you think of it differently? Oh, well, a couple of things. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like the word urgency, I think. We, especially with this technology, we don't want to apply urgency to adopt. We want mm -hmm. to adopt it thoughtfully, sure. be well prepared and reflective. And I think back in 12 years ago now, when Allison and I wrote the network nonprofit, we were at the very beginning of social media. And we thought, you know, that it was important for leaders to know about and embrace these new technologies. Sure. I mean, we were a little bit naive, I guess, of looking back on it because not realizing what the potential was for that technology is kind of neutral and it can be either mm -hmm. do great things or it can do evil things. Sure. <laughs> um, but back then we were urging nonprofit, especially leaders to jump in, try it, experiment, mm -hmm. you know, fail fast. And sure. um, with this next technology, we're, we're saying back up. 
slow down and, and take a more thoughtful approach. So smart tech is kind of a phrase that we came up with to describe advanced digital technologies that identified patterns using something called algorithms, which is basically a set of rules, mm-hmm. um, or we like to call it recipes, like a recipe to bake a cake. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of practice to do them well. And it also takes a lot of data. I think in the book, we say library of Congress size amounts of data. Yeah. And and the difference is, is that it's doing tasks and making decisions that only people did and decided until now. So so we've reached that kind of reflection point um, mm-hmm. where before, a couple of years ago, you had, to, you know, it was only organizations like NASA and big organizations who could afford this expensive technology, but now it's become democratized. So this is that inflection point where it's become accessible to even the smallest nonprofits that are out there. And so, and it's becoming really embedded in everything we do, even though we may not realize it, right? It's Mm -hmm. like the refrigerator humming in the background. We wrote the book because we want nonprofit leaders to be prepared for this next chapter of technology, which is awesomely powerful, but it also comes with some cautionary tales. Yes, for sure. And I think in the book, you bring up some of those things around ethics and privacy and, you know, who owns the data, who has the right to be forgotten if they want to be forgotten in your data set, those kinds of things. Really interesting stuff. When we speak with Nonprofit leaders, limited resources. I mean, you've heard this a million times, I'm sure. Both time and money, I think, are the biggest barriers often to tech adoption, or at least that's what people tell us. What do you think is the ROI they should consider when they're making these calculations on whether or not they should invest? Oh, that's a, such a great question. <laughs> well, okay. It, in some ways, it, it kind of depends, you know, it depends, but mm-hmm. bro- more broadly, I'll speak about it. First of all, I'll talk about a little bit about the challenges. Yeah. Because um, uh, we kind of glossed over that. I know we have, and I've been dealing with technology and nonprofits for like over 30 years now. So the technology has changed, but people haven't <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that much. You know, we have the scarcity mindsets. We don't have the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, or I want this, you know, it has to be instant and has to work right away. You know, forget about piloting. We want this to work right now and I want results right away. And, and again, a, a thoughtful adoption does take time. Yeah. There's also those that are so overwhelmed with the work they have to do before them. It's really hard to make even make a shift to begin to adopt something new because it's not just grabbing software off the shelf. It's really going to change the way you're working and you have to be prepared for that. And that requires training. And then I don't know about you. We were just talking about this before we started. Whenever you have a new tool or the tool you're using changes its interface, there's this like, it takes a more <laughs> cognitive overload to figure out how, what steps are there. And that doesn't feel good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to be an automatic pilot and just like get stuff done. And when you're adopting a new technology that ultimately is going to give you a dividend of time, or it's going to make you more efficient, or it's going to raise more money, you do have this learning piece um, that has to happen first. And I think a lot of organizations throw up their hands and, you know, quit too soon, if you if you will. So I think like in this adoption of with limited resources and time, we really have to think about the concept of drawing down. Mm-hmm. Now, drawing down comes there. It's been terms been used in two different areas that has nothing to do with technology. The first is like when you retire, you're drawing down your pension. So your pension's generating resources for you while you're also taking money out or the whole concept of drawing down your carbon print. 
Mm-hmm. So we can sort of make, not have climate change get worse. Mm-hmm. So, so when we're thinking about adopting technology, we're also thinking about working differently. So maybe there's some things that we have to stop doing <laughs> to put focus into more thoughtful adoption so we can really reap those benefits. Yeah, I mean, I almost think it's sort of an irony when people say we don't have the time to take the steps to save time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's not really we don't have time. It's really we don't we don't want to make this a priority right now. Exactly. And what really is underneath of that is we don't want to feel the you know we're really comfortable with. <laughs> I used to face this like fifteen years ago, and I twenty years ago when I, I was teaching classes on how to use Excel, right? Mm -hmm. And I literally saw somebody write down the numbers on a piece of paper, take out a calculator, (laughs) add them up, and then put them into the cell. And I said, you know, um, there's an easier way to do that. The software can do that for you. And it was like, well, this is very, I don't want to change. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, in some ways, it's the change. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not that we don't have the time. We don't have the, we don't want to think about change. Yeah. 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 It's the discomfort, and we've always done it that way. This way, I think we're going to talk more, and I think talk about some ideas, but might inspire folks to actually take the leap. But in our three most recent volunteer management progress report surveys, we do an annual survey of the nonprofit of volunteer managers in the nonprofit sector around the world, and we all for the past three years we've asked them to rate their digital maturity across a number of areas. And one is just the general overall, what's your digital maturity or how would you self assess your digital maturity when it comes to working with volunteers and using tech to engage volunteers. And we asked them from sort of lagging to maturing. And over the past three years, it's been really curious. First year in 2020, it was 13%. In 2021, it was 24%. In 2022, it went back down to 18% of folks who thought they were maturing. And so uh, there's this bump in the middle. And I feel like people started using more tech during the pandemic. And then once they did, they realized how much else they were, you know, what else they were missing out on. I'm not sure if that's the case. That's one of my sort of theories about it. But are you seeing similar trends like that in the general nonprofit space around tech adoption and how people are feeling and how much they're actually taking on? That's a really great question. I was lucky enough to do a project last year with TechSoup. Mm-hmm. And TechSoup, had, as part of their launch of their assessment tool, their digital maturity nice. <laughs> assessment tool. So it's a, a, a set of instruments that an organization can take of all, any size and assess where they are along a continuum. And it goes into great detail this is sort of overview section. And then you can analyze each functionality, fundraising, marketing, probably volunteering operations, et cetera. And as part of that, we did, I facilitated some workshop sessions, focus groups with other folks who work with nonprofits that offer similar tools. There's a number of them out there. As you probably see, NetHope, TechSoup, N10 has a wonderful tool as well, as well as instruction that goes with it. And so some of the things that I heard around uh, digital transformation trends in the nonprofit sector, and, and mind you, this was at the end of 2021. So the positive stuff we heard was that you know, after you know years of putting tech digital transformation on the back burner, because the pandemic mm-hmm. forced like ten years worth of adoption in the space of a couple of months because people had to do it. Sure. They had to pivot. They had to figure out a way, you know, to do virtual, remote 
distributed team work. They had to figure out a way to deliver their services to people digitally. And now there was that urgency. They had to do it, sure. right? Or else as a safety issue and also, you know, life and death, um, especially when you think about like food banks and having to get, you know, mm-hmm. the services to people. So, um, and also non nonprofits were more open to this. There was less resistance that seemed to melt away. We've always, you know, the always we've done it this way, <laughs> sort of like, sorry, we have to do it. Um, right. Also investing in training and uh, technical professional development. I think the negative thing that happened and maybe why we saw this kind of bumping up and then going down was that, that people, I don't think a lot of organizations did it thoughtfully because they had to go so fast, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just like put everything we do in a Zoom meeting. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and that doesn't necessarily work. You have to really learn to work as a distributed team and, and learn like the concept of asynchronous work versus synchronous work and all those sorts of things and how to co- really collaborate on Google Docs or whatever collaboration platform. So I think maybe after getting used to that kind of sudden shift, then there was like, okay, a lot. Of, some of this isn't working. How do we improve it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and also dealing with this kind of just because we can, should we? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so and I think that happened with a lot of organizations where they realized that they didn't just have to serve a local ge- geography. They could go beyond that, mm-hmm. and also hire beyond that too. They could hire remote staff. So so some of that's like, okay, so now how? To, and they did that without really thinking through the business plan for that. So I think there's like a pause for that. I think what's really needed now is thoughtful adoption and investment as kind of this next phase. And maybe that's with that coming back and doing more planning and being more reflective and like real, not just grabbing something off the shelf and moving because we have to. Right, right. You talked earlier sort of about, you know, thoughtful, purposeful adoption and things we might be cautious about. What are some of those things that you think nonprofits should be legitimately cautious about? You know, without, you know, early on, we're all like, yeah, tech is great. You know, early in the days of tech, I think people, it had a halo effect. You know, it was just like, all tech is good. If it's innovative, it's good. And I think over the years, as you mentioned earlier, things have, you know, lost, lost, gotten a little patina, lost a little bit of their shine, right? It's not necessarily always democratic, right? Those guys think, yes, it can be biased. Yeah, it's not a blank slate. You know, it's not equal for everybody. In your mind, what are the things folks need to legitimately be cautious about? Not that it's going to stop them from moving forward, but just to slow, slow the roll a little bit and think about the things that could harm folk. Absolutely. So I'll talk a little bit specifically about smart tech. And we wrote that book. It's not a technical book at all. We wrote it for nonprofit leaders because we really believe that leaders, that it's a leadership challenge. It's Mm -hmm. not a technical solution. It's not a matter of just getting the techies to do it because there's implications for organizational culture, for the way we do our work, for the way that we're fundraising, for the way we're building relationships with key stakeholders. And as I mentioned before, smart tech, it uses data, it uses algorithms, and it's automating different tasks. So we have to be really conscious about approaching it in a very human-centered way. And the term we like to use is co-botting, mm-hmm. which is figuring out what tasks should always be human tasks and what can be delegated to the machine and what does that path look like. So that's one piece of it. Backing up a bit, before we even get to that, we want to make sure that we're solving the right problem. And as you mentioned before, shiny object syndrome, we don't want to just do it because that organization's doing it. How does this make our volunteer experience better 
or how does this make the staff work work environment better, or how does this create a better relationship or experience for our donors? And in order to do that, we need to use things like design thinking methods, and do, you know, and hear for, get feedback from them. So there's that piece. The next thing uh, we sort of touched on it a little bit about potential bias, and you know, if we think about the use of these technologies and social services, and they're making decisions about who's getting benefits and who's not, we can very easily shut out black and brown people. So we have to be really careful about any bias that's inherent that's been built into the data or the algorithms what were the assumptions that the technologists <laughs> had in building this particular algorithm i'm not saying that nonprofit leaders need to roll up their sleeves and know how to write code no not at all but you need to ask the right questions because we're you know you're looking at what's the once you figured out the problem what is the right tool to solve the problem and then making sure that that vendor or that technologist or that technology company has values that are aligned with your nonprofit organization. And then there's a piece and we we went back Allison and I went back and forth with on what what we should call it. We did call it threat modeling, which is from the <laughs> cybersecurity um field, but it's basically thinking about what are the unintended consequences, what are the potential ways that we could do harm, and there's some you know keep you know we're stewards of data privacy issues or how decisions could be keeping people out, how it can amplify implicit bias. And we need to just go slowly. So I think those are some of the things that organizations need to be legitimately cautious about, but it's not something to keep you away. Yeah. You know, you were when you were talking about sort of delegating tasks to the machine, right? We have a problem in the nonprofit sector around staff being hesitant to delegate tasks to volunteers. So I wonder if there's going to be any similar or if there is any similar grasping or holding on to things where people feel sort of threatened. And in the case of volunteerism, sometimes people feel threatened by volunteers. And I I usually assure people, no, they do not want your job. (laughs) But have you seen that where people are people embracing and maybe you don't know, but I wonder if people are really embracing like, look, I want to delegate everything to the machine or, well, wait a minute, I don't want to delegate any of my stuff to the machine. Yes, yes, there's all of that. So the first one, delegating all of it to the machine, that comes where a leader might say, oh, wow, this can make us very efficient and I can reduce my headcount. This technology should not be used Mm. to reduce headcount or to place human jobs. It's used to amplify Mm. and enhance human jobs, not reduce headcount. I mean, somebody still has to take the donors out to lunch. And I mentioned the term co-botting before, and that's really thinking through what are the tasks that are inherently human, like empathy, creative problem solving, relationship building, and what are the tasks that should be delegated to the machine? And the machine is really good, or the smart tech is really good at crunching a lot of data <laughs> sure, and doing scut work, doing grunt work um, that can free us up for higher level, more fulfilling work experience and for both staff and volunteer, or just give us some more free time or just give us, you know, I don't know about you, but when I have to do grunt work, it's really exhausting. And I, then I don't feel like doing the creative stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, there's another similarity, you know, the alignment of when folks don't want to delegate to volunteers, they also are not, if they want to delegate to volunteers, sometimes it's the grunt work. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, why not find a tool that can help you save your time 
for working with volunteers. And again, and volunteers in addition are not really there to supplant employees either, just like tech. They're not there to supplant the employee. The volunteer is there to supplement, enhance, etc. And so if you can use the three together, you know, the paid employee, the volunteer, and some smart nonprofit tech to take on the, you know, more mundane tasks that even volunteers don't really want to do, you can free up your time to spend your time supporting that key stakeholder group. And that key stakeholder group can spend time being out in the community as an ambassador for your organization. And Absolutely. Serving. That's exactly, exactly. What, you know, what can you do with this dividend of time? It's making me think about some of the examples we looked at um, from food banks. Mm-hmm. And this, this was during the pandemic. Robots, which are a part of smart tech, were being used in the, the food banks to restock the shelves when it wasn't safe for us to go into the warehouses because the you know, we didn't have the vaccinations yet. And if you think about maybe there may be some more vulnerable people volunteering mm-hmm. um, and they want to endanger that. So now that things are, you know, becoming a little bit safer because we have vaccines and we know a little bit more about the virus, should you continue to have the robots stock the shelves? Uh-huh. Um, and if you do, you have to like rethink, okay, so what is it that our volunteers can do? What's the new task? Right. So I was thinking about like, okay, so if the robots continue and do some of this restocking the shelves, although some people may have enjoyed that, you have to really think creatively about what, how do you want to engage your volunteers? Mm -hmm. Because we know that, you know, when people come in and they volunteer, that it's kind of a pathway towards donation, right? Exactly. And then you were talking about like having them become ambassadors in the community or maybe giving tours (laughs) of the food bank, but what the smart tech does both for volunteers and both staff is it allows us the opportunity to redesign the work experience. So it's more fulfilling because there's a higher level of cognitive tasks that might be involved that may be more fulfilling. Yeah. And I think it reduces, you know, in the book, you talk about the leaky bucket syndrome as it applies to donors. But I also think there's that leaky bucket syndrome when it comes to volunteers and that when we're not investing in, in, you know, real core human needs and fulfilling those real core human needs, one of them is doing something meaningful or satisfying. Another is connection and belonging. Another is safety. If you can, you know, augment their work with smart tech, there's so many ways to start being able to invest more into meeting those core needs and not becoming that leaky bucket for volunteers as well. Right. And the leaky bucket is also about trying to find out new people all the time and bringing them in, Mm -hmm. but not focusing on what the experience is for them (laughs) from beginning to like a more in-depth engagement. And one of my favorite examples of how smart tech can do this comes from some of the, the database products that are out there that do use algorithms and data. And so like imagine, and this is for, you know, I see a lot of them in employee volunteering Mm -hmm. area, but let's say that, you know, you're a company and you have a volunteer management database that's built with smart tech. So what can this do? It can make a more customized experience for the employee who wants to volunteer and connect them with the type of experience that really matches their interests, then making them wade through a lot of things that are not as interesting to them. So let's say that they express an interest in animals or dogs and they want to be connected to a shelter. So the algorithm could match them with an experience at a shelter, maybe walking the dogs and find a shelter that's near work or find or their home. 
And so the first engagement, they go in, they, they walk the dogs, and then the algorithm automatically sends a message to them, how was your experience, you know, on a scale of one to five. And if they rated a five, they might send them, you know, additional information about other volunteer opportunities or come sign up regularly for Wednesday, walk the dog, whatever it is. Maybe they, they said it was a one, which was a terrible experience. And at that point, the system might automate a message to the volunteer manager or the executive director to call that volunteer and find out, you know, mm-hmm. why was this experience less than fulfilling? What can we do to improve the experience? Yes. And so if you have a system you know, that that's automating a lot of those tasks, but keeping the human side there, you are, you know, you're getting to better impact by creating a better experience for the volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. And you're focusing your time. I mean, volunteer managers wear many, many hats, and they're always juggling priorities. And you're, you're deploying, you know, the most human of the job, at the right time, which is- and they don't have to get overwhelmed. You know, if, if this is an organization that has hundreds of volunteers, it would be really hard to wade through <laughs> all that data, right? You get overwhelmed. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But that algorithm can sweep through all of that and say, "Here's a list. These five people didn't have such a great experience. You should call them first. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so good, so good. Let's talk a little bit more about volunteer engagement and what's been happening in the pandemic. There was a report from NCVO. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It was in July 2022, but it was built off of a survey they did in 2019 prior to the pandemic, and they've been continuing to produce reports about you know, the volunteer experience, they interviewed about 10,000 volunteers, it was a qualitative study, as well as surveying. But what they're finding now, and in the last year of the pandemic, really is two things that are really impacting volunteerism. And there's been a significant decrease globally in volunteerism. So we're, we're always looking for how are we going to bounce back? And how are we going to become more resilient, given what we're faced with? One of them is lack of digital connectivity. So People appreciated the convenience of, you know, connecting via Zoom or in other digital ways with remote teams. But they also noted that there's been created a digital volunteering divide, you know, sort of the haves and the have nots, whether it's skill or lack of tech tools. And then there's the second area was we're starting to see a lack of appetite for volunteerism. So there's a reduction in formal volunteering, but then there's lots of people helping people, informal volunteerism, neighbors helping neighbors. There's sort of a surge in that. And, you know, globally, we often see more of that in more developing countries and formal volunteering in the U.S., Canada, et cetera. But we're really seeing across the board now more informal people being more interested in helping each other and also thinking about, you know, how am I going to get back to the simple pleasures in life, spending time with friends, et cetera. So how might, you know, we're going to do a little brainstorming here. How might smarter nonprofit tech solutions help with these two problems? Any ideas? Sure. I, you know, I think these are complex problems and maybe a simple technical solution is not going to solve them. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to take a step back. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things came to mind as you were talking, you know, it's a parallel, this kind of the virtual connection is not enough. (laughs) Social capital needs to be rebuilt and that, that needs to happen in the workplace and also in the relationship between organizations and volunteers. So and rebuilding social capital, leaving t- unstructured time, getting to know people, 
think about all the things that are happening as people are coming back to work that leaders are doing in the nonprofit sector to rebuild that social capital, which is giving time for people to connect. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's sometimes a little tension in that from a staff side is like, oh, to connect for what? I have all this work to do. <laughs> right. But but it's really we get we need to get to you know back into relationship with one another because relationships are the lubricant of getting work done. And I think relationships are the magic sauce of getting volunteers to have a really great experience. The digital divide, uh, you know, was here before the pandemic. Yeah. It, it was accelerated and amplified because of the pandemic. But I think, you know, there are many government and technology companies and nonprofits that are working on this issue in many communities. So I think that if I was running a volunteer program, that I'd want to be part of those coalitions and see what was happening locally mm-hmm. to see ways that we could, you know, I could get some help bridging mm-hmm. that divide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, very and I think that last thing about people wanting to engage in the other pleasures of life and, and not want to volunteer and, you know, take a stroll on the beach and, you know, life, we were all taught life is short, right? So maybe, and everybody is kind of reevaluating what their priorities are, um, you know, and it may not just be work, right? And so I think, this becomes a market demand issue. And I think that this becomes an opportunity maybe for a collaborative campaign that rebrands what volunteering is, you know, maybe what some of the benefits are that, you know, about doing good, giving back to the community and really thinking about like reframing that volunteer experience as, you know, a connection to overcome loneliness that we're all facing because of this to get past burnout. (laughs) Because when you have purpose, it's a vaccine against burnout in a way when you have a sense of purpose so I think there's that market demand issue and maybe it's like even rebranding what, you know, volunteering isn't just coming in and doing free work for people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> You're talking and, my uh, language, Beth. <laughs> right? Um, it, you know, it, there, it can give them a sense of purpose. It can it help, you know, give back to the community. And the other thing I think we need to rebrand too is that structured volunteering in nonprofits is not the only that this informal volunteering, we have to honor that, all the mutual aid that's happening, or, or just being kind to people. And there's a lot of movement around that, particularly in ph- philanthropy circles. So those are just a few things, thoughts off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think too, you know, people have been through trauma. I mean, let's, let's not lie. It's been a traumatic experience. It's It's a global shared trauma that we've all been through. And I think, you know, you talked about this a little bit, you just mentioned a little bit about, you know, how volunteering can be part of a way to bounce back, you know, it can be help us become more resilient, it can help us remap our brains, you know, if we've been on high alert for a long time, and we start, you know, our, our primal brains are going off danger, 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 and we're able to sort of get in environments where we can kind of remap some of those alert signals into something more productive and you know, connecting with humans. We all, we all know volunteerism is healthy for us as well. I'm going to take a quick break. And I, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about wellness, because I know that's a second passion of yours. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on things. So we'll be right back after this break with more on smart nonprofit tech and insights with Beth Cantor. And we'll take a dip into how we might better promote wellness and prevent burnout within our organization. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Volunteer Nation, we invite you to check out the Volunteer Pro Premium Membership. This community is the most comprehensive resource for attracting, engaging, and supporting dedicated, high-impact volunteer talent for your good cause. 
Volunteer Pro Premium Membership helps you build or renovate an effective What's Working Now volunteer program with less stress and more joy, so you can ditch the overwhelm and confidently carry your vision forward. It is the only implementation program of its kind and helps your organization build maturity across five phases of our proprietary system, the Volunteer Strategy Success Path. Okay, we're back with our discussion with Beth Cantor about smart nonprofit tech and how you can help your organization become more resilient. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Beth's second passion, which is promoting wellness and workplace resilience. So Beth, before the break, we talked about this report from NCVO that talked about uh, the digital divide and digital disconnection in some ways in the volunteer world and a declining rate in volunteerism, or at least informal volunteerism. I think we need to mention that caveat. I think there has been plenty of help people helping people. But one of the other things they found was that there are elevated levels of burnout in volunteers, and it's become a key tension in volunteerism. There's, you know, an elevated level of anxiety and fatigue among pandemic volunteers, as well as a strong sense of guilt for not doing more, which just breaks my heart, you know. So, you know, when we talk about workplace resilience, we're often focusing on paid employees. But, you know, you've talked a lot uh, and done a lot of research and written on workplace resilience. What things can we apply to volunteers? You know, I think there's a lot <laughs> that's adaptable and can be applied. And the first thing is that we have to think of burnout as an organizational issue. It's not mm-hmm. the fault of the individual. And mm-hmm. this is something that the World Health Organization was working on right before the pandemic. Back in 2009, it declared that burnout is an organizational responsibility. And it results uh, from having unmanageable workloads, a toxic work culture, and enforcing staff not to have work-life balance. So organizations need to have look at ways to mitigate the workload. When we talk about toxic work culture, that's how we treat one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then the and they also need to encourage work-life balance. So I think that this is, you know, when we encourage work-life balance, we want to not only encourage that of staff, but also encourage that of volunteers and maybe even having conversations with them around, like, what brings you joy to volunteer <laughs> here and not drawing on the same volunteers over and over and over again and making sure that you're, you know, have enough in your pool so that the burden doesn't become placed on a couple, a smaller group of people. And again, I go back to thinking about smart tech and how that can take away some of the grunt work mm-hmm. and really, really shift and make that job, volunteer job task more fulfilling. I also think about, you know, there's another piece of volunteering that I think is really exciting, and that's the professional volunteer who is donating their professional skills to the organization. And I love all of the organizations that are out there, and there's many that do that kind of matching, where they'll take professionals in the workplace who are looking for a way to donate their professional expertise to nonprofits as a way to find purpose. And I had this experience with this organization called Wake, which is the Women's Alliance of Knowledge Exchange. And basically what they do is tech volunteers who are women from technology companies in Silicon Valley, and they take them on a delegation to a country, and they've been doing things virtually (laughs) or in the U.S. during the pandemic, and they get assigned to working and providing their expertise to women's rights organizations or women entrepreneurs. And I know I've watched and I've been part of this program and I've watched the volunteers and how much joy this brings them to be able to do that kind of work. And I just think every corporation should have this as part of their social impact program or part of their employee benefits to have some sort of 
really great volunteer experience. And this particular one where they bring the group and they don't only just work, <laughs> we have, they have meals together in the country. They learn about women's rights. They get to do some tourism stuff like shopping, but only at, like with the women owned businesses. And it's a really wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. So, so how can we like make this kind of process of giving back? How can we bring joy to it? You know, versus it being a chore. <laughs> And let's just do this crap work. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say to people like, hey, gang, you know what? People don't volunteer because they want to work for free. They volunteer because they want to change the world, you know, and and sometimes the nonprofit on the nonprofit side, they're still thinking of volunteers as widgets and replaceable. And if volunteerism is more fun than the alternative in the community of staying home and being, you know, on lockdown, and if it's fun and it's not as stressful as other things in life. I think organizations can become a magnet for volunteers. I remember my early days, uh, this is like, well, 30, 40 years ago with one of the officers I work with. And they used to have the women's guild who were the Mm -hmm. volunteers. They would have lunch together, but they would come in the morning and they'd be dispersed all over to different offices. And they'd come in and they would, in those days we were sending out paper appeals and they would literally stuff envelopes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was great, you know, and helped out in the office, but really is stuffing, what really stuffing envelopes? Is that really like changing the world? Yeah. 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 Unless they're having fun social time. Sometimes it's that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there's that, but I'm just really thinking through where can you dovetail what the organization needs to have greater impact with what the human volunteer needs to feel like they have purpose. Yeah. How can you marry those two? Yeah. And I hear a lot of, a lot of pushback from leaders of volunteers saying, you know, even when I'm talking about, hey, let's figure out how to do, this is the most basic automation. Let's figure out how to do a welcome, an onboarding welcome campaign using your email service provider, just to build relationships through email. And because you can't be there with every single volunteer all the time. And you can create lots of fun emails that talk about your culture, that that are fun, that engage people. But I'll get a lot of pushback and say, no, no, that feels really, it's impersonal. It feels like we're not really building relationships that way. Do you think there's a balance between sort of using technology and communicating with folks and building relationships? Is there a place or is it is technology more, smart tech in, in particular, more about taking over the mundane things and allowing people to be in that space of having time to make those relationships. Well, it's both end, mm-hmm. both end. So there is taking over some of the removing the grunt tasks and people staff repurposing their time. But what you were talking about with the onboarding emails, smart tech has the ability to highly customize instead of sending out a blanket email, mm-hmm. which is impersonal and to do it at scale and then much faster than a human could do it, but to actually have it seem like a very personalized email, not just their first name, mm-hmm. but even like summarize some information that's uh, in the database and incorporate that into a couple of sentences. Sure. The last time you were here, you walked the dogs and, you walk the dog named Tigger and he really appreciated it or whatever. And you could do that for thousands of messages. You can customize it. That's what smart tech can do. I'm not saying about that. It can send out the same message to a thousand people. It could send personalized versions of that message a thousand times, you know, a thousand different personalized versions of that message to those people in 
way less time than it would take a human to do it. So it's sort of like exponential segmentation. Yeah, but it doesn't replace the human phone call follow-up. Sure, absolutely (laughs) not. No, not at all. But it gives the human time to do that. (laughs) So yeah, I think there's really interesting ways to think about how smart tech can be used. And how do you think, let's just ask one last question before we, uh, I have my final question for you. Some people believe that technology causes stress and a lack of work-life balance. So they will just basically blame tech for that. Is there a place for both technology and resilience, particularly when we're engaging communities? Yeah. I mean, technology is a double-edged sword, as I mentioned before. It could be you know, an, an agent of distraction, or it could be an agent of calm, Mm -hmm. right? There's just as many apps out there that you can use technology to help calm yourself. Like a lot of the mindfulness Mm -hmm. apps that are out there, Fitbit, I'm wearing a Fitbit. um, It's on an app. So yeah, I think the problem is, is that the technology companies have designed the the apps so that we become addicted to them and, and we use them more and more and we have to practice technology wellness. And that's, you know, taking breaks from the screen, not scheduling all those back-to-back meetings. There's also, you know, there's this thing called email apnea and it was a study done by Linda Stone a good while ago, but she found that when people were answering their email, they were holding their breath and it was increasing their heart rate. So it was like apnea. And that's not good for us, right? Right. So as we become aware of what technology is doing and what the impact is on our body, and if we're addicted to it, learn to like put some boundaries around that. Um, Like, you know, not reading your email first thing in the morning when you wake up, you know, not having technology be the last thing you do at night. Yeah. You know. Wish I could talk my husband out of that habit. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I I use a mindfulness app. I use the mindfulness app. I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. Head, headspace. Yeah, yeah, I I use it every morning, and I'm actually doing a course on rewiring your brain, and so I'm using technology to reduce the impact of technology. <laughs> so it's pretty fun. It's a nice way to learn. You know, I think we're at a space in human or time in human evolution where we know more and more about how the brain functions. You know, we have technology to understand how the brain functions. And we know we can control more of our brains and we can remap more of our brains than ever before. So it's a really fascinating time to have that understanding of neuroscience coupled with exploration and expansion in technology. It's just a really fascinating time in, in human history. Well, Beth, this has been a fantastic conversation. I hope that for our listeners, it's giving them some ideas about things they might want to try, an understanding. Make sure you pick up the book. There's some really great frameworks in there for adopting tech in a purposeful way. The Ready, Set, Go uh, framework you developed, that's really, I think, a very smart and not, I don't want to call it simple because I don't think adopting and going through tech transformation is simple, but it is a way of simplifying the complexity a little bit and taking your baby steps towards new tools. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me today. One last question as we wrap up, what are you most excited about in the year ahead? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) I love that question. (laughs) I, you know, I'm, I did, um, in my pre-pandemic life, I was on a plane every other week. I did a lot of long-haul flights because I got to train and do fac- facilitate groups all over the world, literally, or, 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 or just speaking. And, and, and there's one side of my, me that misses that an awful lot. The other side 
kind of, I don't miss the travel or the UG from the travel or the jet lag, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to getting back to being with people more <laughs> yeah. for, uh, instead of mediated through a screen, you know, even though they're uh, at the same side having same time, having a little bit of trepidation around, you know, I think we all have PSTD about fear of contagion. Yeah. I won't speak for everybody. I'll speak for myself. I'll yep. say I admit that, yep. but I look forward to like seeing what our future new normal is um, around digital transformation and workplace well-being and, you know, where the sector goes from here. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, we got a little push, a little unintended, probably not entirely welcomed push during the pandemic for folks to start to try things and some things worked out. Some things didn't, you know, sometimes folks have to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. Maybe that's a silver lining of all of this. So, yeah. Yeah. So Beth, before we uh, log off, how can people learn more about you? And of course, we will post all kinds of links in the show notes, but how can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you? Okay, the best way is through my website, which is www.bethcantor.org, and that's K-A-N-T-E-R. You'll find links to all my social media. If you go to the section how can I help you? You'll find my resource library. You'll see I have a lot of handouts about both all of these topics and I curate a lot of links and reading. So those are also available in my resource library and there's a contact form. Uh, I'm out on Twitter at, at Cantor and also on LinkedIn. I don't do much on Facebook and I always respond to people who reach out on social as much as I can. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a fantastic conversation about smart nonprofit tech. I really appreciate everything you've done. I appreciate all you've done in terms of your writing and ideas and thought leadership around moving us towards a better future. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Volunteer Nation podcast. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so we can reach people like you who want to improve the impact of their good cause. For more tips and notes from the show, check us out at tobyjohnson.com. We'll see you next week for another installment of Volunteer Nation.